One of my favorite uh, quotes outside the Bible dates back to a 19th century Jesuit priest in Scotland named Father Strickland. The quote, uh, I didn't even know that until a couple of days ago when I started researching the quote, but the quote has gone through many generations, many incarnations and revisions over time, and you're going to recognize it probably when I, when I give it to you. The most well-known incarnation of the quote was probably the one that was found on a plaque that sat on President Ronald Reagan's desk during, in the Oval Office during the days of his presidency. The original form of the quote goes like this. I have observed throughout life that a man may do an immense deal of good if he does not care who gets the credit for it. There's one little adjustment that I believe would make that quote pretty close to perfect. A man may do an immense deal of good if he cares only that God gets the credit for it. The flip side of that would be that the man who is bent on getting honor for himself will do an immense amount of harm. And that harm will be multiplied exponentially if that man happens to be in a position of leadership, especially leadership over the people of God. Zechariah chapter 11 is about two leaders who are as different from one another as light is from darkness. But more to the point, it is about whose leadership God's people value. When we understand this passage in those terms, the lessons of the passage start to become very straightforward. Now, if you want an answer for every detailed question that you could possibly smoke out of this chapter, you're going to be out of luck this morning. When Jerome, the 4th century theologian, wrote that this is the most enigmatic, in other words, the most difficult to understand book in the Old Testament, I'm convinced that he wrote that right after he read this chapter. We could spend the whole hour this morning examining all the different options that commentators have come up with about for instance, what parts of this apply to things that happened in the past? What parts apply to things that will happen in the future? What parts were fulfilled during the period from Zechariah to Christ? What parts were fulfilled during the first coming of Christ? What parts will be fulfilled in the time leading up to the second coming of Christ? Who are the shepherds and kings that are spoken of but not named? These questions have been addressed in volume after volume of uh, scholarly writings. But you know what we'll get if we go through this hour and, and dive into those questions? We'll get everything but the point. We'll get everything but the lesson of the passage. And that would not be good. My intention this morning is to try really hard to focus on the forest instead of the trees. And those of you who know me know that that's an exercise. Because <laughs> sometimes I like the trees. I won't do it perfectly, but that's my intention. And by the way, speaking of forests and trees, that's where the passage starts. In verses 1 through 3, God declares that a fire is coming. He says, Open your doors, O Lebanon, that a fire may feed on your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, because the glorious trees have been destroyed. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the impenetrable forest has come down. There is a sound of, it, of the shepherd's wail for their glory is ruined. There is a sound of the young lion's roar for the pride of the Jordan is ruined. In those verses, God says 
He is sending a fire that is going to consume the forests of Lebanon and Bashan. These verses set the stage for the whole rest of the chapter. This fire of judgment is going to destroy something that people considered glorious. Verse 2 says that the cypress trees will wail when they witness the cedars of Lebanon being consumed because the cypresses were the lesser, the smaller trees. And when they see those grand, marvelous trees going up in flames, they know that their, their time is numbered. The oaks of Bashan likewise will wail as they see that impenetrable forests of Lebanon coming down. Finally, in verse 3, the shepherds will wail and the lions will roar. Remember the two terms, glory and pride, that are in verse 3. Now since trees don't actually wail and lament, maybe you've heard one, but I haven't, we all should have a pretty good clue that there's some figurative language going on here. And the second chapter of Isaiah presents these exact same images with a little bit more amplification of what's going on. And it helps us a lot to understand what we're looking at here. Right after declaring in Isaiah chapter 2, right after God declares that the day is coming when He's going to reign over His people from Jerusalem, He talks about the house cleaning that He's going to do among His own people to prepare for that glorious day. Starting in Isaiah 2 verse 5, He indicts the house of Jacob because He says they are filled with influences from the east, from the pagan nations. They have embraced diviners. They have struck bargains with foreigners. Their land has been filled with all kinds of useless substitutes for a true dependence on God alone. Substitutes like silver and gold and treasures and horses and chariots and fortifications and idols. In Isaiah 2, verse 11, look at this passage. God says, The proud look of man will be abased. That means cast down. And the loftiness of man will be humbled. And Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. And then he says, says verse 12, For Yahweh of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased, cast down. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against the, all the beautiful craft. What do all those things have in common? They're lifted up. They're exalted. They're grand. They're glorious, at least by their own reckoning. Verse 17 repeats the declaration of verse 11. And the pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be cast down. And Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols will completely vanish. In that passage from Isaiah, the cedars of Lebanon and the oaks of Bashan that are lofty and lifted up are symbols of the lofty pride of men in themselves and in all the work of their own hands. King Solomon spent ridiculous sums of money to purchase timber from the cedar forests of Lebanon to build his own glorious palace. 
In 1 Kings 10, Solomon's palace twice is called the house of the forest of Lebanon. That chapter says that all the drinking cups and utensils in Solomon's house and his palace were made of gold because in those days, in Solomon's reign, silver was of no consequence. Can you imagine that? Don't tell the Hunt brothers. Right beside each of the armrests of Solomon's gold-plated ivory throne was a lion, no doubt, made of gold. And on Along each side of the six steps that led up to his throne were lions. So there were 12 more lions. And with that in mind, look again at Zechariah 11, verse 3. As the forests are going up in flames, it says there is the sound of the shepherds wail for their what? Their glory is ruined. There is the sound of the young lions roar for the pride of Jordan is ruined. You see the connection of all these images. The lion represented the kings. It is amazing that the man to whom God gave the greatest wisdom of any man on earth, the man who built the most glorious physical temple for the worship of Yahweh that has ever existed on this earth, also built a palace for himself that was so glorious that it rivaled that temple. Now, I'm not saying that these first few verses in Zechariah 11 are talking about Solomon, at least not primarily. Until the latter days of the reign of Solomon, he did a pretty fair job of ruling his people. Israel was blessed by God through King Solomon in many ways. But he set a really, really bad precedent. The tremendous wealth and extravagance and all the formidable trappings of military might with which Solomon surrounded himself most certainly helped pave the way for his own moral downfall and for the moral downfall of many self-exalting and God-ignoring kings that came after him in both Israel and Judah. Go back and read Deuteronomy 17 and what God said before there was a king in Israel about what was required of the kings of Israel. Everything with which Solomon surrounded himself and with which the kings after him surrounded themselves, God had forbidden for them to surround themselves with those things. Go look at that sometime. In order for God to return to dwell among His people, He must first make them return to Him. That's what this book is about, right? as their one and only source of every good thing. Their only stronghold. And that means that God must first burn down every other stronghold in which His people have come to depend. When He does, the shepherds and lions, the leaders, the religious leaders, and the kings over His people will wail because they will not want to give up the work of their own hands in which they have come to trust. But it wasn't only the leaders of the people of Israel and Judah who had turned away from their true shepherd. It was the people themselves. The flock of God. God is going to burn down every symbol and every outworking of the people's rebellious dependence on mere men. The theme of God humiliating those who exalt themselves and tearing down every work of man's hands is one of the most prominent themes in the whole Bible. It's everywhere. Now, 
There is a very simple principle in this that applies whether you're in a position of leadership or whether you're a sheep. It is a simple, radical, life-transforming principle that you find very often in the Bible. And here it is. It is not possible for you to lift up your name and God's name at the same time. And lifting up God's name is a full-time assignment for the flock of God. So guess who gets dropped from the credits? The constant biblical imperative to God's people to honor and exalt God demands that we flee from every exaltation of self. Every exaltation of self. We need to think about what that means. You've heard a thousand times it's not about you, right? It's about Him. That becomes a platitude. But you know what? We should have that dangling in front of our faces 24 hours a day. Our obsession with getting our way in this life, our obsession with being sovereign over our own provision and safety, our obsession with being loved and respected by people, our obsession with winning every argument, our obsession with being vindicated every single time that we are misquoted or misrepresented or misunderstood, even our obsession with being recognized as right in every nuance of our theological system. All such obsessions are about exaltation of self and not of God. It's not wrong for you to want your life to go well. It is fatally wrong for you to think that it is you instead of God who controls your well-being. It's not wrong for you to desire that other people would see you as honorable rather than dishonorable. But it is fatally wrong for you to think that the honor that anyone ascribes to you is under your control instead of God's. James 4.10 says, Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6 says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Do you know how many times in the Bible it says exalt yourself? None! It is not possible for you to lift up your name and God's name at the same time. When you lift yours up, you shame His. And here's the corollary to that simple principle. If you're exalting yourself, you're hurting God's flock. There is no such thing as victimless self-exaltation. There is no thing as, no such thing as victimless selfishness. The good shepherd lays down his life for the flock. Self-serving shepherds do selfish things that hurt the flock. A huge part of what makes our self-exaltation repugnant in the eyes of God is that it always hurts His people. And it's not only selfish shepherds that hurt God's flock, it's selfish sheep. Every single time that your priority is on building yourself up or protecting yourself or making a good reputation for yourself or getting credit for yourself, you are tearing down what matters to God. Every single time. God is going to burn down every vestige of self to which we cling because that is the only way that we as individuals and we as the community of God's people will be made ready to dwell in His midst. 
He's not going to share the glory. He talks about us sharing His glory. But that's entirely His doing. We don't go after it. We don't get to grasp it. The only way we get any glory, the only way we are ever exalted is when that exaltation comes from the hand of God by His initiative, not ours. You cannot return to God if you haven't turned from self. If that assignment is not clear to you, if you don't know what that means, don't sleep until you do. Because that is probably the most foundational aspect of God's assignment to those who are His people that you will ever come up with. The entire decline of mankind that estranged men from God was when men knew God and refused to honor Him as God or give thanks. Professing to be wise, they became fools. This is a matter of spiritual life and death. Even if you're a believer, even if you are headed for heaven and for glory, what you do with this principle right now is a matter of life and death to you. Because you can spend all your days on this earth on a path of death. That's not what you want to do. The rest of this chapter explains a little bit more about the reason for the fire that's coming. And that reason is fundamentally that the people value the wrong shepherds. To put it another way, it is that the people don't value the right shepherd. And we're going to see that in living color here shortly. In verses 4-17, to God does something very interesting. He commissions His faithful prophet Zechariah to dramatize to the flock of God and to the shepherds of God of that flock, excuse me, what He's going to do to them because of their faithlessness. Now it was very common for God to require His prophets to dramatize certain things. Before the siege of Jerusalem, God told Jeremiah to take a yoke and put it around his neck to dramatize for the people the fact that God had determined to give them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar who would bind them and carry them off into captivity. There's a whole lot of examples like that in the prophets. Here in Zechariah 11, God presents a prophecy in the form of a drama in two acts. And the actor is Zechariah. In the first act, in verses 4-14, to God commissions Zechariah to take on the role of a good shepherd. Then in the second act, in verses 15-17, to God commissions Zechariah to take on the role of a foolish shepherd. In verse 4, God says to Zechariah, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. You know what a spoiler alert is? We didn't get one there. God gives away the end at the beginning. And it's not pretty. In the very first words of this drama, Israel and Judah are told there's a slaughter coming. Before we get to see what Zechariah does with this rather discouraging commission, God makes a pronouncement in verses 4 and 5 that gives us a little more background, a little preview of of what this slaughter was going to look like, and a little amplification about the reason why it's uh, for why it's coming. In verse 5, God exposes the false shepherds of Israel and Judah as mercenaries 
who buy and sell God's sheep for their own selfish gain and who do so with absolutely no pity for the flock. And to add insult to injury, they attribute their ill-gotten gain to God Himself. They say, Blessed be Yahweh, for I have become rich, selling His people. But God's coming judgment is going to bring down not only the false shepherds of God's people, He's going to judge the whole flock. In the next verse, He says that He's going to judge all the inhabitants of the land. And He says, just as the wicked self-serving shepherds have had no pity on My people, I will have no pity on My people. And why is that? It's because they have chosen for themselves self-serving shepherds. He's going to give them over to fall into the power of other kings who will strike the land. And when they do, God says, I shall not deliver them from their power. Even though Zechariah has to shepherd God's flock in the shadow of that ominous prophecy, he accepts his commission from God. Verse 7 says, So I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter. Hence the afflicted of the flock. And the word afflicted is used with great frequency throughout the Old Testament to refer to the downtrodden. To the widows, the orphans, the aliens, the poor, who by the way, were the ones who tended to be faithful to God. They tended to be the the faithful remnant. But they're still in the mix when God dispenses these judgments. That's kind of interesting to think about, especially in light of eschatology, prophecy. Um, God repeatedly declares in the Old Testament He's going to be the advocate for those downtrodden. And even though Judah and Israel are marked out for a time of harsh judgment from the hand of God, God's good shepherd cares for them. And He says that He's paying special attention to those downtrodden. Just as He calls us to do, by the way. Now, verse 7 says that Zechariah took for himself two shepherds' staffs. The first one was called favor or pleasantness. That word is used to describe pleasant things in the Old Testament like the beauty of the Lord in Psalm 27.4. The kindness of the Lord, Psalm 30, uh, 90, verse 17. Desirable, encouraging words that are in keeping with God's character. Proverbs 15.26 16.24. In summary, it refers to the things that are gracious and pleasant that proceed from the character of God toward His people. The second staff was called cords or bindings. A little later, verse 14 makes it clear that that second staff represents the union between Judah and Israel. More specifically, it represents the promise of God in His covenants that He will bring about that union, the the reuniting of the tribes, the the houses of Israel. Now, in the first half of verse 8, Zechariah says that he cut off or destroyed three shepherds in one month. And people, the commentators have struggled with that one for a long time. (laughs) Who are those three shepherds? If you read any two commentaries, you'll probably get two different opinions of who they are. My opinion, and it's worth no more than that, is that this is talking about the three categories of leaders in Israel and Judah that God indicts over and over and over for 
doing a really lousy job, and that is the kings, the priests, and the prophets. I believe that this verse refers to God's intention to purge His land and His covenant community of all of their self-serving leaders so that He may be their one and only King and Shepherd. I believe there is a hard break in the middle of verse 8 that some of your translations won't show, including mine, (laughs) New American Standard. The word for or but that is right in the middle of that verse is supplied by the translators. It's not actually in the original. And there are a number of translations that show that. Holman Christian Standard, New King James. They make a break. They put a period in the middle of that, that verse. And so here's the way I would do it. In one month, I got rid of the three shepherds. My soul, period. My soul was impatient with them, and their soul also was weary of me. And the them in the second half is not the three shepherds; it's the flock, which is the subject of all of what comes from that verse forward. The second half of verse eight, that's right there, introduces scene two of Act One. The good shepherd who accepted his commission in verses seven to eight. A, now rejects that same commission. And it's not because Zechariah is an unfaithful prophet who's not able to finish what he started. Throughout this dramatization, Zechariah is acting on behalf of God to show the people what's going to happen to them by God's design. The reason for the Good Shepherd's rejection of his commission is stated very succinctly in verse 8b. My soul became impatient with them and their soul also was weary of me. Now, that some of, some of your translations will show the second half of that is kind of weak in this one because there's a big contrast between the two halves of that statement. The good shepherd became impatient with his flock, but his flock detested him. The word that's translated in Nasby there, this translated was weary of me, literally means was nauseated by me. You guys all know what it means to be nauseated. God's flock was nauseated by the good shepherd that he had placed over them. So what happens? Well, verse 9, Zechariah says, I will not pasture. What is to die, let it die. What is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. And let those who are left eat one another's flesh. And I took my staff favor, pleasantness, and I cut it in pieces to break my covenant which I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. That last statement is amazing. Who was it that recognized what was going on? the afflicted of the flock. They were watching. They were paying attention. They were tuned in with what Zechariah was doing. The rest of the flock probably didn't have a clue. Now the reference in verse 10 to God's covenant with all the peoples is not talking about His covenant promises to Israel. Because Israel is not all the peoples. If you you look at the way that phrase is used in the Old Testament, it's talking about the pagan nations. So what covenant did God have with the pagan nations? I believe this is talking about an unspoken covenant of protection 
under which God had been constraining the surrounding nations so that they would not come up against His people. We saw, we saw that in chapter 8 and 9 when God was doing this campaign of judgment against the nations and Israel was spared. Judah was spared. But now, God declares through Zechariah that He's it's hands off. He is going to let the nations come up against His people. And He says, what is to die, let it die. What is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. And let those who are left eat one another's flesh. Not a pretty picture. The downtrodden recognized what was going on. The rest, well, don't know what they did with it. But Zechariah, acting in the role of the good shepherd, is saying that he won't shepherd the flock anymore. That is a devastating declaration. Now within the recent memory of Zechariah's audience, God had withdrawn His hand of protection from His rebellious flock in a very vivid way because the siege of Jerusalem in for 18 months in 589 to 587 B.C. was the worst siege of any city recorded in the Old Testament. The horrific curses of Deuteronomy 28 and 29 were fulfilled in vivid detail during that siege, including the cannibalism that this passage talks about. Josephus says there was cannibalism in Jerusalem during the Roman routing of that city in 70 A.D. But the most terrible separation from God's shepherding care that Israel has ever experienced came about because of their rejection of the perfect shepherd when He was standing right in front of them. In Matthew 21, Jesus was at the temple in Jerusalem. And He was talking to the multitudes, but He especially directed His comments to the, the elders and the scribes, the leaders at the temple. He told them some parables. And one of the parables that He told them was about a landowner who had a vineyard. And the landowner was going to go on a journey, so he, he handed the cultivation, the care of the vineyard over to some sharecroppers, tenant farmers who were supposed to take care of cultivating the crop and then when the crop came in at harvest, they would get enough for themselves to take care of their families and they would give the rest of the produce to the owner of the land. That's what sharecropping is. When the harvest time came, the landowner who was away sent two groups at two different occasions, two groups of, of, of his servants. And when the servants came to collect the produce that belonged to the landowner, the sharecroppers beat some up, stoned some others, and killed some. Twice. So the landowner sent his son, thinking, well, maybe they'll actually recognize his authority. But when the sharecroppers saw the son coming, they said, oh, this is great. Here's the heir of this estate. Let's kill him and we'll get the inheritance. You know, maybe the, maybe the landowner will die wherever he is and there won't be anyone to claim it and it'll be ours. So they killed him too. After telling that parable, Jesus asked the religious leaders what they would expect that landowner to do when he came back to his property. And for once, they gave a good answer. <laughs> they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. 
And Jesus said, gotcha. He said, did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone? This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. And when he said that, he was quoting Psalm 118, one of the great messianic psalms. And he said, therefore I say to you, you religious leaders, you shepherds over my flock, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and it will be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. The interaction throughout the first act of this drama in, in Zechariah 11, the interaction between Zechariah and the Judahites was a foreshadowing of what would happen when the true shepherd of the flock of God, Jesus Christ, came to His people the first time. And John 1.11 says, He came to His own and those who were His own did not receive Him. So because they rejected Him, the Good Shepherd has for a time said to His covenant people, I will not shepherd you. And that same rejection by Jesus Christ of His covenant people, Israel and Judah, is in focus throughout the rest of this first act. Verses 12 and 13 are piercing. Zechariah, still acting in the role of the Good Shepherd, asked the people to give him whatever wages they deemed to be fitting for his service in shepherding them up to that point. It's like uh, his going away pay. Now he made it purely voluntarily. voluntary. He said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, uh, never mind. At that point, the people weighed out 30 pieces of silver. That should sound familiar. In the next verse, verse 13, Yahweh Himself intervenes in this drama. And He says to Zechariah, take that, those 30 pieces of silver and throw them to the potter. And then He get this, He says, that magnificent price by which I, Yahweh, was valued by them. So Zechariah says, I took the 30 shekels of silver and I threw them to the potter in the house of, of the Lord. And I know I've said this a million times, but every time you see in the Old Testament, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Yahweh. That's the name. That's what that's translated. Okay. God declares that the money that the people gave to Zechariah as his pay for being the good shepherd, that 30 shekels of silver, God says that is the magnificent price by which I was valued by them. And he's being, by the way, he's being sarcastic. <laughs> By most accounts, the value of 30 shekels of silver was roughly four months' wages for a typical laborer in that era. But this isn't an arbitrary number. It's not like, oh, well, maybe it could have been six months, it could have been two months. In Exodus 21, there's a passage that explains what was required to make restitution if your ox gored a human being to death. And if your ox that you happen to know was in the habit of goring, gored a slave that belonged to another Hebrew, you were required to pay that, that, that slave owner 30 shekels of silver. That amount wasn't about placing a dollar value on the life of the slave. It was about the replacement cost of the slave. Now, however offensive... <laughs> that whole transaction strikes us in our modern sensibilities, we better not miss the connection between that Exodus passage 
and this one because it is a condemnation of Israel. When the good shepherd sent from God and portrayed by Zechariah asked the people to give him whatever wages they deemed appropriate for his service to them as their good shepherd, their valuation was the same as the, as the replacement cost of a foreign slave. A slave that became a slave in, in Israel because he was from a conquered nation. Which, by the way, if you, I don't want to get into all of this, but it can be very gracious that that man is able to be a slave instead of being destroyed. Well, let's, I won't go further into that, but it, we make, we draw conclusions about stuff in the Old Testament without really taking the time to look at the context, the historical context. Now, God says here that the 30 shekels, again, wasn't their valuation of Zechariah's leadership. He jumps into the drama and he says, this is their valuation of my leadership. In Matthew 27, Matthew makes a direct connection between the 30 shekels of silver paid as wages to Zechariah in this passage and the 30 shekels paid to Judas for betraying Jesus Christ into the hands of the Jewish religious leaders who executed him. Now I'm going to come back to verse 13 in a minute. But first I want to finish out this drama. In verse 14, the good shepherd sets aside the promise of unity. It says, I, he says, then I cut my second staff union into pieces to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Ever since the generation right after Solomon, about somewhere around 1000 BC, Judah and Israel had been divided and at, and at enmity with each other. The people of Israel and Judah have never been reunited since then. In chapter 10, God made a wonderful promise that He's going to Signal, he's going to whistle for Israel and Judah and he's going to gather them from all the places into which they've been scattered and he's going to put them in the land and he's going to live there with them. The one who will accomplish that glorious reuniting of the house of Israel and the house of Judah is God's anointed shepherd king. In Ezekiel 37, there's another prophetic drama. God told the prophet Ezekiel to take two sticks one representing Israel and one representing Judah, and to put them together in his hand because he was going, he was promising that he's going to reunite the two houses. And he says, Ezekiel 37, verse 24, and my servant David will be king over them. But see, David's been dead for 500 years. And they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. Why? Because God will make them turn to him. And they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them, I will place them and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then he says, and the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel, who makes them holy when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. See, that's what God is going to do. And the one through whom He's going to do it is the one He calls in Zechariah, my servant, the branch. The promised servant, shepherd, king in the line of David. He's talked about throughout the book of Zechariah. 
But before that marvelous regathering, before that glorious redemption in which God and His people will dwell together in the same place, His own covenant people would reject His shepherd. And that's what Zechariah is talking about. The good shepherd is rejected by His people. And so God set aside that promise of union for a time. Not forever. Just until God makes His people return to Him. Because later in that same passage, Jesus says to him, you will not see Me again until you say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. That day is going to come too. Act 2 of this drama is fairly short. It's the last three verses. God instructs Zechariah to take up the equipment of a foolish shepherd. I guess instead of a shepherd's staff, he has a golf club or maybe a, a video game console or something. I don't know. I'm not saying those things are evil, but they're not shepherd's staffs. And then God explains why he is to do so. He says, For I am going to, behold, I'm going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing. So he won't even feed the healthy ones. But he will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. Is that vivid enough? And then he pronounces judgment on that worthless shepherd. He says, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword will be on his right arm and on his right eye. His arm will be totally withered and his right eye will be blind. Now the word foolish and the phrase foolish shepherd doesn't just mean stupid. In Proverbs, over and over, it refers to the one who is opposed to the way of God and to the character of God. Proverbs 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I don't need to worry about Him. Because God's people will find no value in submitting to His good shepherd, He is going to raise up a godless shepherd over them who will be the ultimate expression of the kind of self-serving tyrannical leadership that he condemned earlier in this chapter. He'll be the kind of shepherd they kept seeking out, but on steroids. He'll be brutal. He'll be cruel. He will devour the sheep. Now in terms of historical fulfillment, who is the foolish shepherd of whom this passage speaks? Again, there are different answers from different commentators. There are certainly elements of this passage that would seem to apply to the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. In Mark 12, Jesus said that those leaders crave respect and honor for themselves, but they devour widows' houses. In Matthew 23, Jesus pronounced seven woes on the religious leaders of His day. And He said to them, Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. And then listen to this. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. You know what this Zechariah's father's name was? Berechiah. In the last two verses of Matthew 23, Jesus is saying, addressing Jerusalem, and I ascribed this to the wrong passage, forgive me, earlier. Matthew 23, 38 and 39, Behold, Israel, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, 
from now on you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That will happen. As with virtually all the prophecies in the book of Zechariah, I believe this one has more than one fulfillment. Personally, I believe the ultimate fulfillment of this passage points to the beast of Revelation chapter 13, who with the help of one called the false prophet, who does his bidding, will impose an abominable religious system on the whole world, under which he will require every man, woman, and child to bow down to him and worship even as he imposes his tyrannical political and economic system on the whole world. Whoever doesn't have his mark won't even be able to buy or sell. I believe this is the same ruler to which Daniel refers in Daniel chapter 8, verses 23 to 25. I won't read that because we're out of time, but one little excerpt says, he will magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes but he will be broken without human agency. In the concluding verse of Zechariah's prophetic drama, God pronounces the doom of the worthless shepherd. Then, as we'll see in the concluding chapters of Zechariah, the true leader of God's people will return to set all things right. Now I want to back up a little bit and go back to verses 12 and 13, because I believe it's the epicenter of this whole chapter. In our discussion about this passage on Wednesday, my brother Phil Borat said, this is about the value that we place on God's leadership. And I believe that's exactly right. In the drama that Zechariah plays out for us in this chapter, the value that God's own people placed on him as their shepherd was a calculated insult. So how about the value that you place on God as your shepherd? As the one who has absolute authority over your life? What is it in this tumultuous world that we live in that gives you confidence that it is well with you? When you see Christians on the other side of the world getting their heads cut off, when you see their daughters being kidnapped to be sex slaves, What is it that makes you feel safe? Is it that you live in the country with the most powerful military in history and and the country that has the best funded intelligence apparatus in the world? Is that what makes you feel safe? When you see images of deprivation and poverty on TV, what is it that makes you confident that your physical needs are going to be met in this life? Yours and the needs of your family. Is it because you work for a well-managed company that's probably going to be around for a while? Maybe one that you manage yourself? Certainly, you're, you're reliable. Is it because you live in an economic system that guarantees that you get to keep the fruit of your labors instead of having it absconded by the government or someone else? Do you feel like your well-being is less secure when someone whose policies you disagree with gets elected and has authority over you and the economy in which you live. Does that make you nervous? Does it make you fearful? Do you feel like your own well-being is in jeopardy because your husband's judgment is so flawed? Or because your boss's judgment is so flawed? Or because your parents' judgment is so flawed? 
you wonder sometimes if it even makes sense anymore to bother with being part of the organized church because of what you've seen of the altogether imperfect decisions of those who are in leadership in the organized church. Or maybe you think it's not worth your time because you've seen so much selfishness and hypocrisy in the rest of the sheep. Have you thought about who is actually the head of the church? About who's actually calling the shots with His body over whom He is the one and only true shepherd? Whose leadership are you really counting on? Whose leadership do you really value? Before God returns to a redeemed Jerusalem to dwell in the midst of His redeemed people, He is going to bring down every worthless shepherd. He is going to burn down every vestige of the glory that man seeks for himself. He's going to cure us once and for all of our fear and exaltation of self and of other men. And I put the word fear in there deliberately. Because that's what makes us exalt ourselves and others. And He is calling us now, today, right now, to let go of all those imitation gods so that we may be useful today to show off His glory. Because that's the only glory that's real. It's the only glory that matters. It's the only glory that actually produces well-being for anyone. It's time for us to give all praise and glory to the only true Shepherd. This morning, we sang a hymn that I didn't know. 793, For the Beauty of the Earth. And I love verse 4 because I was thinking about, okay, all this stuff that's high and lofty and lifted up that God's going to bring crashing down in order that He may be our only our only one. Verse 4 says, For the church that evermore lifteth holy hands above, offering up on every shore her pure sacrifice of love, Lord of all, to Thee we raise this hymn of grateful praise. That's what we're supposed to lift up to God. Dear Father, may we be characterized, may we be dumb dependent, grateful sheep. May we have the humility by Your hand to recognize that it is the best of all possible circumstances for us that we're not the ones leading. That You are. Lord, may we rejoice in Your promises of what is to come when You finish out all things. May we rejoice in the knowledge that the day is indeed coming when there will be only one name that is exalted when there will be only one shepherd. We will be Your people. You will be our God. And we will be with You forever. We praise the name of our Good Shepherd. Amen.